Welcome to Asshole Court, the podcast where a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. The 11-point scoring works like this. On the low side, a score of 1 equals an asshole rating equivalent to Mr. Rogers. And on the high side, a score of 11 equals an asshole rating equivalent to Hitler. Pre-show asshole scores are given, and at the end of the show, after all information has been laid out, all three judges will give their final score. The subject's final score will be the average of these three numbers. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time, especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously, so just don't. Today's subject has been a headline grabber for months now, and it's pretty easy to understand why. The recipe goes like this. Take a secret of man, make him ultra wealthy, make the origination of his wealth mysterious, tie in a shocking sex crime and scandal, then add the implication of involvement in said scandal to many other members of the ultra wealthy and powerful. This includes people that both sides of the American political spectrum despise and distrust. This includes members of the British royal family. Incorporate an obvious miscarriage of justice in this man's initial sentencing for said sex crimes. Years later, when this miscarriage of justice is sufficiently exposed to the public, have the architect of the light sentencing, the then acting U.S. Secretary of Labor, resign from his post in shame. Rearrest the man. Reopen the case. Then, while incarcerated, have the man die under questionable circumstances, thereby ending the prosecution and possible exposure of everyone complicit in the crimes. When the story is laid out like that, it really isn't difficult at all to see why the Jeffrey Epstein story has captured the attention and provoked the anger of America as a whole. But look, although people are understandably upset that Jeffrey Epstein's untimely death keeps him from facing the criminal courts of the United States, we hope that you will be able to get some satisfaction out of his appearance today on Asshole Court. Okay, we're doing the show a little different than we normally do. When we started researching Jeffrey Epstein, we realized that there is just way too much to condense it down into a standard hours-long episode. Honestly, it's just a weird and intriguing story. So instead, to give it the full treatment that we feel it actually deserves, we're breaking it up into two full-length episodes. The first part is the early years, the Epstein you don't know. That is, we will cover the generally lesser-known early years of Epstein before he became a quasi-well-known financier and fixture in New York, and Palm Beach social scenes. In the second episode, we will cover Epstein at the height of his insidious powers all the way through his infamous arrest and through to his mysterious death. So we hope you enjoy this deep dive into a man that is arguably the most famous asshole in the world right now. All right, guys, so we're going to do preliminary scores. What is your thoughts on Jeffrey Epstein? Randy. So everybody knows who Jeffrey Epstein is by now, but before he hit the news, I really had no idea who this guy was. Obviously, he ran with some of the most powerful, rich people in the world, but definitely seemed to fly under the radar until all the shit kind of hit the fan. 
I don't read tabloids or know who's dating the most hot supermodel at the time. So unless I really tried to seek out to find who these kind of people were, Mm -hmm. I really had no way of, you know, the context of knowing how this dude would operate. But knowing what we know now, this is definitely going to be an interesting show about one of the fucking weirdest, most eclectic sickos in recent memory. So the details about some of the stuff he owned, how he got his money. And really a bunch of shit that just kind of paints the picture of what we've kind of found out about what his fantasies and the fucking odd shit that he did. So off the rip, I'm giving EpiPen a 7.5. All right, buddy. Nice. Yeah, he flew under the radar. He did a great job of keeping his life secret and kept himself secluded while it seemed like he brought everybody to him instead of going out and seeing everybody. He did a real good job of staying under the radar. I, like Randy, didn't know a lot about him until he landed himself in jail recently this year, and then he kind of flew off my radar as well, but then he committed suicide. Epstein didn't kill himself. And (laughs) (laughs) then he really started to hit into the news, and then meme culture took over, Mm -hmm. and that's when I really started to pay attention to him. Just hearing the stories in the news, he seemed like a seedy motherfucker. But prior to doing all the research and seeing how crazy this guy really is, I'm going to have to rank him pretty high for everything that I've heard. And I'm going to have to give Jeffrey Epstein an 8.0 for my original score for him. I actually knew about this case back in 08 when it happened. I remember watching it break down. Yeah, because there obviously were political implications. So it makes its way into political news. And it also was one of those situations where even back then it was a very fascinating story, but it was localized to New York, Palm Beach, that sort of stuff. So I was a little bit aware of it. It was on my radar, but obviously when this all popped back up, it blew up and it got global coverage. So now it's fascinating. And to me, like I wanted to do the show because his whole life is so weird, dude. It's just so it weird. It really is. Yeah. Man. And it's just fascinating in a different way. So I would go, everything I knew about him, even back in the time when he initially got arrested and stuff like that, I mean, just because of the underage factor there, you know, not a big fan of that shit. So I'm going to score him at an eight as well to start off with yep sounds about right all right so we've got a 7.5 for randy 8.0 for buddy and an 8.0 for mikey so jeffrey epstein's preliminary asshole score is gonna be 7.83 okay all right you guys ready to get to it let's rock let's do it all right jeffrey edward epstein is born on january 20th 1953 to pauline and seymour epstein Uh, according to a pre-scandal profile on him i found in vanity fair from 2003 Jeffrey grew up in middle-class Brooklyn, but there are also conflicting reports on this. One source I found claimed that while Epstein would often claim to have grown up in South Brooklyn near Coney Island, he actually grew up in Seagate, which is New York's oldest gated community. Seymour Epstein was his dad's name. That sounds like a character off The Simpsons. You're thinking of Seymour Butts. All right. Yeah, no, that could have been it. I just envisioned an older Simpsons character. Well, that was one of the names Bart Simpson would use when he'd call the bar. Yeah, it's a classic. Seymour Butts is one that was probably even before The Simpsons. But yeah, Seymour is a very common name uh, for uh, probably that generation of Jewish people growing up. Seymour Epstein. Seymour Epstein. That's right. But yeah, what's interesting, too, is that his father worked at New York City's Parks Department. Okay. So, you know, in your mind, you're thinking he's an attorney. An accountant or something like that. But no, he worked at the uh, New York City Parks Department. He's got one of those trash grabbers out there in Central yeah, Park. Yeah, basically, right? That's what's, what's interesting, too, because his mom was a homemaker and a school aide. So, again, we already start off with a mystery. His dad works for the Parks Department. His mom is a homemaker and a school aide. And they come over. They're, I believe that their first generation, their grandparents yep. were killed or their parents were killed in the Holocaust. 
And yet they live in Seagate, which like is a they, gated community. How do they get there? Right. I don't know. Again, I don't understand. He also has different stories. He grew up south, was in Coney Island. Then they're like, no, it's Seagate. It seems to be the truth that I found in multiple sources was that it was he grew up in Seagate. Hmm, okay. Nice, very nice neighborhood. To a teacher's aide and a guy, yeah. Worked the parks department. I guess it doesn't specify what his role the park. He it's could have true. been like a, a soil scientist or something like that that made a decent living, but. I think you would say you're a soil scientist then before you just say, <laughs> I work at the parks department. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah especially for somebody like him. Unless he's like trying to hide that stuff, which yeah. he did try to keep a lot of his life secret. So, Well, let's put it this way. If you guys work at Walmart, but you're the manager of a Walmart, how do you lead that conversation? What do you do? I'm a manager at Walmart. <laughs> I'm a manager. Yeah. No, I work at, at Walmart. Wal- yeah, <laughs> never like, I work at Walmart. And they're like, what, what do you do? They're like, it, people are automatically like, is he a greeter? Yeah. Is he work? So anyways... I feel like he would have said something about it, but just weird. Again, we're already starting off the rip. At age of five, Jeffrey begins to play the piano and apparently becomes very good at it. He was also apparently very skilled at mathematics. Friends of Jeffrey described him as sweet and generous. Aw. They did. And they called him Epi. Epi. Ah. That's where it starts. Yeah. Yeah. I already alluded to EpiPen. That's right. That's, I mean, you know, fits in. So his parents believed that education was a way out for both Jeff and his younger brother, Mark. Like I said, middle class background. This is sort of a thing, especially like the people I know in the Jewish community. They were all like, you have to do well in school. Absolutely. Of course. And so Jeffrey attends Brooklyn's Lafayette High School, where he graduates at the age of 16 in 1969 after skipping two grades. Wow. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's one thing we can't really doubt is he was a smart guy. He was very smart. He was a very, very smart. Intelligent yeah. man. But it's like, what do you do with your intelligence? It's, you right, know yeah, what I mean? Yep, that's yep. more what's do you questioned use it for today. Good or do you yeah. use it for evil? Well, and that's an interesting thing, too. And I'll get into that, too. Is like you have people that are like obviously intelligent, but there's also levels to that game. Yeah, yep. sure. So we'll get into that here in a little bit. OK, so when he graduates at 16 from Lafayette High School, he begins taking classes at Cooper Union, which is a prestigious school uh, in New York known for its engineering and architecture programs. Later, he transfers to the Corinth Institute of Mathematical Sciences at New York University, where he languishes until June of 74 when he exits without a degree. And there's no concrete reason or answer as to why he dropped out. No one seems to have an answer to this. He never really specified why. But again, it's weird. He graduates at 16, is obviously a smart kid. He goes to Cooper Union, just decides, all right, forget it. I'm going to, you know, New York University. And then six years later, drops out without a degree. So it does six years, doesn't get a degree. Maybe he was too busy chasing tail. Well, and that's the thing, too, is I learned a little bit about him. He didn't drink, smoke, do drugs, any of that stuff. So I'm assuming, I don't know if he did in college or not. No, I don't think he was ever known What the fuck were you doing for six years? If you graduate when you're 16 and you're pretty much not a prodigy, but you've skipped two grades, you're doing Mm -hmm. pretty well. Yeah, Yeah, and he actually shied away from people that drank and smoked and did drugs and stuff like that. So. Yeah. I don't know. That's, That's another very curious thing to yeah. add to his resume. There you go. That summer at age 21. Yeah, he's, he's 21 that summer, apparently. Okay. He's offered a job as a teacher at the extremely prestigious Manhattan private school, Dalton, an institution known for its rigorous academics and wealthy clientele. It repeatedly ranks among the nation's best private schools and draws the sons and daughters of New York's titans of finance, media, and art. Now, as a side note, the hot rumor is is that the current U.S. Attorney General William Barr, his father, Donald Barr, was the one that gave Epstein that position. Really? Which wouldn't be so weird except for the fact that Epstein didn't have a college degree, which even back then was pretty much required to be an educator, especially, you'd assume, at like a top-level private school. 
that's exactly one of the thoughts I had is how did he get the job without yep. a teaching degree? He must have been extremely impressive just in, you know, conversating stuff well, like that, but And although I genuinely try my hardest not to traffic in conspiracy theories and gossip, there is one thing that's just too fucking weird not to include here. Donald Barr, the man that is rumored to have given a young Epstein his job at Dalton, was also an aspiring author. In his spare time, he wrote science fiction novels and even managed to get his work published. One of these science fiction novels published in September of 1973 was titled Space Relations. And according to people that have actually read the book, and there weren't many until a couple months ago, it is, quote, highly unsettling and depicts the rape of enslaved people, especially teenage girls and other coercive sex acts for the dual purpose of entertainment and controlled procreation. Which, again, the book subject matter is pretty fucking weird considering Epstein's infamy for the whole sex with teenage girls. And as we'll get into it in a little bit, grand designs on controlled procreation. Yeah, that yeah. is a little bit odd, and oh, that's a little, yeah. bit, a little bit too coincidental at the same time. Well, that, and that's going to be an interesting dive when we get into that whole second layer. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, once somebody on the internet made this connection, the remaining copies of Space Relations available for sale on Amazon shot up from a few bucks to hundreds of dollars per copy. Wow. I bet you that shit went number one on Amazon's bestseller list for whatever was there. It, I watched it tick up because I remember someone pointing that out and you were like, holy shit, man, that's so weird. Yeah. Why didn't I buy 10 copies of that last I know, week? Yeah. And how did, when Barr was getting appointed to his position, nobody do any kind of background and know this well, about his and father? And this is the other thing I'm going to get into. So, like I said, before we get too deep down like the rabbit hole of salacious <laughs> conspiracy. Easy to do. I do have to note, though, that I personally, and I looked, I haven't been able to find a definitive answer as to whether Barr was actually the man that hired Epstein. In fact, it sounds somewhat unlikely considering that Barr left his position at Dalton a few months before Epstein even started. Mm. So mm. it really could just be the craziest coincidence of all time. It really but could be. What a but coincidence. I had to include it. Yeah, of it's course. It's so Absolutely. weird. Of course. Absolutely. Oh, man. So, but like I said, if it's true, it, it's just, either way, dude, it serves to add to the mysterious soup that is Jeffrey Epstein's life, mm -hmm. right? At Dalton, Epstein is a polarizing teacher. According to one New York Times article, Epstein was known as a teacher who, quote, pushed the limits on the school's dress code, wandering the halls in a fur coat gold chains and an open shirt that exposed his chest hang the fuck on the teacher had a fur coat and gold chains yeah sounds like a, a pimp walking around new york you know what i mean like, like yeah honestly if that's the style of the times and that's your teacher i mean my teacher's fucking cool bro yeah you know yeah. what i mean i mean that's that's the thing you know he was 21 22 when he comes in He's rocking the, the fucking Chewbacca coat. Oh, what's up, your new teacher? Check out the fucking gold chain on this shit. But, I mean, honestly, you have to see the picture of Epstein at this time. Oh, man, if you haven't seen it, go out and Google it to. right now. It's hilarious, dude. He just looks so, so weird. He looks like go. the Fonz a little bit in he that. He does. To me, he looks like if you cast Herman Munster as the guy off Welcome Back, Cotter. Yeah, go Google it. Do yourself a favor. Yeah, Google you got to right see. Now. You got to see the young Epstein. Just sly grin too. He looks like like he's, he's up to something. He's up to some. Shit. He looks like he's oh, up he to was something. up to something. So you're meaning to tell me that Epstein was not Jaime Escalante from uh, <laughs> Stand and Deliver? How do I reach these kids? <laughs> <laughs> he basically was, but not a good one. <laughs> 
you know, in that picture, he looks like he's given effort. Look, there's writing on the chalkboard behind him. There's mathematical equations. Yeah, he, he likes has, math. He, it looks like he has an ascot. Is that an ascot? No, no, it's just a full-on giant lapel shirt. Oh, okay. Yeah, All yeah. Right. Yeah, so anyways, a number of people that were interviewed for the article said that Epstein was an unusual and unsettling figure who, even then, seemed to have a thing for teenage girls. <laughs> Shocker. Which is interesting, because they were like, even then, I'm like, I don't think it ever stopped. Is right. it really shocking? They're like, well, when he was younger, he couldn't have been into that. I'm pretty sure it was a defect in his personality from the get-go. From day one, right? Yeah. yeah. But one student recalls going to a party, only to find Epstein there amongst the other drinking, partying students. He was the only teacher at the party. That doesn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. Look at the picture. Shit, he, yeah. He's hanging out. So, yeah, cool. I mean, imagine going to high school, party, <laughs> only to see your, like, math teacher there in a fur coat and gold <laughs> chains just hanging out. But I was thinking about, like, if I went to a party and uh, our principal was there and he was like, hello, Michael. Oh, yeah. Glad oh, you would make it. Uh-huh. Might I offer you some early times whiskey and Mountain Dew in a McDonald's cup? Oh, what am I doing here? Well, don't mind me. I'm just here for the weed and the ambiance. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell your parents. Oh, we had a very eclectic principal in high school. Very much yeah. so. Yeah. I just like doing his voice. Oh, and that's he's... why I like to imagine him at a party just like stoned as a bat. Like, <laughs> hey, Michael. He said, I can't even barely see my eyes are shut so tight. He was the most closeted gay man that never came out. Ever. Yeah, it's tough to say though, because some of those old Southern dudes they do have, have a, a, very a gay feminine draw. voice. Yeah. yeah, I put the light bulbs on, Michael. <laughs> we got the good, colorful light bulbs. I'm so high. <laughs> I can do this for hours. All right, let's get back to Epstein. Scott Spicer, the student who witnessed this, says, "Quote: I can remember thinking at the time, this is wrong. Yep, of course. Yeah, you don't want to see your teacher at a party, like." You're afraid of what they're going to go back and tell your parents yeah. or fail you or hold that against you moving forward. I think you just hit the nail on the head. Hold that against you yeah. falls right in line with pretty much his it's MO for yeah. the rest of, or I'm sorry, possible mm-hmm. MO for you know the rest of his life. Were there any teachers that you'd want to see at a party? Yeah. Yeah. My, I had a couple football coaches that I would have loved to have had a couple beers with back yeah. in the day. That mm-hmm. would have been kind of cool. And then we had... The one teacher that taught like the work release in the work release program. <laughs> Working on the chain. Yeah. When we had that class you had to take if you had a job and you left school early. Yeah, I remember. Oh, yeah. She had a little, I don't want to call it goth to her. She wore a lot of like black stuff. Yeah, I don't remember her off the top uh, of my head. If you saw a picture, you'd Yeah, I'm sure I'd remember her. her. She had the school store. Yeah. Another student, Paul Grossman, who heard about the party, quote, said, it was weird. Everybody talked about it. I guess it would be pretty weird if the teacher was there just hanging out. Just there hanging and out. And you know what? That may be the weirder thing is if the teacher is just there not drinking mm-hmm. and dressed in a fur coat and gold chains and just kind of watching all you guys get hammered. And Well, I mean, that speaks to his personality. I mean, yeah. he was probably sitting there trying to profile who he could hook up with because yeah. he wasn't getting high. He wasn't drinking. Do you think any of the teachers in high school that we went to hooked up with students? I think it happens in almost every high school, to be honest. We heard rumors about that. At there were high rumors. School, yeah. And actually, I pose this question all the time to people because it makes the news anytime that they're like, oh, can you believe that? I'm like, think about it. Think about your school. There was rumors around your school. Now, whether it's true or not, I think it happens significantly more frequently than people want to admit. Man. Well, and, think and about, probably back then more so than nowadays. And think about the, the physical ages. If you have a, a kid that may have been retained a year, possibly mm-hmm. two in their whole schooling career. Yeah. By the time they graduate, they're going to be almost 19. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people can get to college and graduate by the time they're 22. So Mm -hmm. you could have 
potentially like a 22, 23 year old teacher yeah. and 19 year old kids in their class. Yeah, absolutely. That's 21, not, that's not a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's not a big age gap. So, I mean, it's definitely possible. Yeah. Apparently, some students were so sketched out about Epstein's behavior with the other students that at least one of them claims to have raised the issue with the school administrator. But I should note that there were at least some students that found Epstein to be a, quote, charismatic young teacher who at times acted more like a friend than an authority figure to students. Who at times had a boner in the middle of class. Yes. <laughs> and his fur pants. <laughs> <laughs> nice pants, yeah. dude. Leather pants with a puffed out crotch. Yeah. yeah. It's my cod piece. <laughs> This is acting class. This is Shakespearean. <laughs> Everybody attach your cod pieces now. And girls, get in your loincloths. <laughs> Epstein participated in school musicals for parents and faculty. He also coached the Dalton Tigers math team. Oh, I was, hoping, right. was, I was yeah. hoping you were going to say football or basketball. It would have been wrestling. Yeah, yeah. But the math team doesn't surprise me. Yeah. No, I mean, at that, he also was like a math teacher. I wonder teacher, if he was so. good at poker. If he even played poker, I would argue that he probably would be if he I, did play. Yeah, yeah mathematically, I'm sure he would. A, yeah, it's but. a math poker is a very math heavy game, so I would assume he'd be decent at it. But yeah. I didn't hear anything on all my research either about him ever yeah, gambling. Yeah, never something gambling or anything like that. But yeah, he obviously was very good at math, um, and, and I guess that rolls right into the being a financier and. Yeah. Yeah, investing in yada yada. So yeah, exactly. he might have looked poorly upon it due to his already looking down on drinking and smoking. Could have been a vice that he looked down upon. It's yeah, possible. Exactly. But usually those guys love poker. They love odds games like that. Yeah. So it's possible. Again, it's all speculation at this point. But obviously he was big into math. He was the coach of the math team. And that was like right at the end of his tenure at the school there. Dalton. Dalton, that's right. Was he let go because of the odd relationships with a female student that prompted some students to try to report him to the staff? That was one of the things that there was apparently one girl that people were questioning. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, there did seem to be some relationships that were occurring there, at least through the grapevine. But that's not the reason that he was let go, according to Peter Branch, who was the interim headmaster at Dalton at the time. He claims that Epstein just wasn't good at his job. <laughs> yeah. I read the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that a 22 year old kid not good yeah. at their job, you know. He said, Epstein was a young teacher who didn't come up to snuff, so ultimately he was asked to leave. But Branch further claims that he didn't recall any students raising concerns about Epstein's behavior, although he does remember some of the faculty voicing concern about his teaching methods. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you think? Yeah, right? Yeah. He's not really good at teaching. He seems to just be leering <laughs> at, the, at the students the entire time. We actually had a teacher. I remember this. We had a teacher, and I remember being creeped out because he would send the attractive girls up to the board to do math problems. Oh, mm. man. Yeah. All of us will never forget the one teacher we had for graphic arts that I don't know how the hell he got a job as a teacher. He barely did. His references were not vetted. Uh, no. In the slightest, this guy just sidebar completely. We had a teacher in high school that would openly talk to us about dating strippers and doing cocaine with them. And he thought he was kind of winning us over with their confidence. There was one time that in the, uh, this was back in the day, we had a photo developing room <laughs> and I came into class one morning and he goes, hey, buddy, come over here and check this out real quick. And we go into the dark room and he points over to one of the tables. He goes, is that Coke on that table? And I'm like, I have no idea. And without missing a beat, man, he ran his finger across it, licked it to his tongue, was like, yep, that's Coke. 
I was like, all right. Yeah. You just did that right there in front of me. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got a free pass for the rest of the year. Uh-huh. So uh, that's the thing. When he was there, it felt like he was, it felt like a while. But if you look back now, you're like, I was there. For, it wasn't even that long. It was six months. Yeah. One semester and he was shot. No, I don't know how the fuck this guy got a job, but it was a good time. His class. I don't know how that happened, but he, yeah, he, he was did. there for six months. He should have been there for zero months. <laughs> yeah, his replacement story. was much harder. Yeah. On us. Oh yeah. Maybe and she she, she walked into a hornet's nest because <laughs> Ooh, it was we're like, Ooh, I want graphic arts again. Mm-hmm. Hey everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show. As you mindlessly scroll through your phone while waiting in line for coffee, like us on all your favorite social media platforms. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at AHC Podcast. Thanks for your support. Back to asshole court. So, yeah, uh, like the teacher we had, Epstein is let go from Dalton. Luckily for him, by this point, he has managed to hobnob with one of the student's fathers, a finance guy who works apparently fairly high up at Bear Stearns. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, the guy tells Jeffrey, what are you doing teaching math at Dalton? You should be working on Wall Street. Why don't you give my friend Ace Greenberg a call? Sounds like a made-up name. The deal is, Alan, or Ace Greenberg, was like a super famous chairman of Bear Stearns Investment Bank, which obviously now is a shamed, defunct institution, mostly infamous for its collapse in the beginnings of the 07-08 mm-hmm. financial meltdown, but back then was very well respected. They were oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They were They're huge. one of the big dogs yeah. on Wall Street. Exactly. And Greenberg himself was an interesting character. He was a guy who'd come up from a fairly average background but had managed to work his way to the top of one of the largest investment firms on Wall Street with smarts and hard work. Probably because of this background, Greenberg had a soft spot for guys that seemed smart but didn't have the pedigree usually desired in the big Wall Street firms. So Greenberg actively sought out talent that he called PSDs, or poor, smart, with a deep desire to be rich. Okay. Jeffrey checked off all of those boxes, apparently, and in 1976... He started his new career at Bear Stearns as a junior assistant to a floor trader at the American Stock Exchange. Hmm. He quickly moves up the ranks of the firm. What set Epstein apart was his ability to utilize advanced mathematics to structure trades in what are known as options. In the mid to late 70s, options were fairly exotic financial instruments that weren't fully understood by your average Wall Street hire. But due to Epstein's math skills, he gravitated towards them and the mathematical processes needed to price them properly. Interesting. I didn't yeah. know he was an options trader. Yeah. Okay. Well, he wasn't specifically an options trader, but that was like his area of expertise. Okay. And like I said, a lot of guys then were just pretty much boilerplate. Like these yeah. are stocks you buy, you sell, whatever. But he had figured out there's something called like the Black Shoals method, which is mm-hmm. a mathematical method for pricing options. Right. And if you can get it accurate, then it makes a huge difference in how you trade these options. So- He's like the new kid on the block, the math guy. Just made him stand out uh, head and shoulders above everybody else. Exactly. And also an additional skill set he had was understanding the tax implications of financial decisions for his clients. That's huge. That is what they're looking for to save money. In a pre-scandal New York Times write-up from 2002, one of Bear Stearns CEOs, Jimmy Kane, explains, quote, he was not your conventional broker saying buy IBM or sell Xerox. Given his mathematical background, we put him in our special products division where he could uh, advise our wealthier clients on the tax implications of their portfolio. He would recommend certain tax advantageous transactions. He's a very smart guy and has become a very important client for the firm as well. By 1980, Epstein had made partner at Bear. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was a quick jump. Four Four years. Four years. And he started as an assistant to the floor trader. Yeah. The PSD. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But in 1981, he up and leaves the company. Yeah. I think that there was some shady shit that was going on. I was about to say, let's dive into those details. Yes, exactly. 
Why he leaves is somewhat mysterious as well, obviously. A number of people that worked with Epstein at Bear recalled that he left the company very suddenly. There were apparently rumors that he had been involved in a technical infringement, which had forced the executive committee to ask for his resignation after they overruled his two supporters, Ace Greenberg and Jimmy Kane. Although both Greenberg and Kane denied being overridden by the board. Greenberg said he couldn't recall the issue, and Kane himself went a step further and denied that Epstein got in any trouble at all and instead chose to leave to set up his own shop. But we do know that the SEC did question Epstein in April of 1981 regarding an insider trading tip on a company named St. Joe Minerals. But nothing seemed to come from that investigation. Mm-hmm. But still, why would a newly minted partner make an unannounced and rapid exit from a major Wall Street firm? Yeah, that doesn't seem like something you would do. Right. Unless you did have the ultimate intention of because it does happen. People have, you know, he might have been aspiring to create his own sure. management firm and then gets promoted in mm-hmm. the middle of kind of setting it up, mm-hmm. laying their foundation for it. And you kind of take the promotion in stride and you're like, just given I'm not yeah, saying no, 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 no. Now, right. but, this know, is an open conversation because yeah. we don't there's not an answer for this. Right. We don't know. Yeah. And that could have been the thing is he already had the idea to do it. He gets the promotion. You're going to turn down a promotion to partner. Right. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, he could have been working that in the background, seeing if it was going to work out yeah. and saw that it did left mm-hmm. or he had, you know, whatever he could have had dirt on one yeah. of the guys at the firm or whatever the case may be. Yeah. But, you know, there could be a legitimate out as to why he left. But again, International man of mystery. Yeah. Is he the new Austin Powers, it sounds like? But not funny at all. And in ex- the slightest and perverted. Also extremely horny. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, he's Randy. Yeah, baby. He's Randy, baby. Yeah. But not in a good way. Not, not in a funny sli- way. Not in the cool way like I'm Randy. But, <laughs> <laughs> but generally speaking, if you leave in that situation, once you make partner or whatever, you're, you're usually. set, bro. You're set. But you're usually building up a potential book of business before you make an exit. Yeah. You're yeah. building that yeah. up, right? And maybe he had that going for him. But I mean, at the same time, it seems really fishy to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're about to get into that, right? Let's go. So he leaves Bear Stearns in a rush. And uh, after his departure from Bear Stearns, he sets up his own shop, J. Epstein & Co. The business model? Jeffrey Epstein would manage individuals and family fortunes for a flat percentage fee. The only stipulation... The clients must have a net worth of a billion dollars or more. That's right. And this is back in 81? Right. Jeez, As he liked to explain to friends, quote, I was the only person crazy enough or arrogant enough or misplaced enough to make my limit a billion dollars or more. Now, here's the reality, though. The stipulation of having only billionaire clients would be extremely limiting for fund managers even today. In 81, even more so. Yeah. But back in the early 80s, it's basically laughable. One source that I found had the total number of billionaires in 1982 as, have a guess. Seven, 12. 70. 13. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That was pretty Buddy, close. Nice. Nicely yeah. done. I figured worldwide, you might have, you know. Those... Worldwide. Yeah. I'm speaking America. Oh, so, America. Yeah, yeah. I would have said 13. 13. Yeah. 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 Sure, I guess. Yeah, yeah. sure, Randy. Yeah. But I mean, like that was, uh, I remember back in the 90s, it was like the attainable goal was like if you hit a million dollars, like you could retire, everything was going to be comfortable and that was it. But I mean, I mean, you compare that to nowadays. I mean, that's. No, they tell you now, if you retire at 65, you're going to need about two million bucks. That's and that's now. 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 Right. Yeah. You're going to need two million bucks when you retire at 65 to make it to be, I think, like 85 or something yeah. like that. Well, and that's your goal. You have like the 401ks, IRAs. I personally am going to have what I call the 357 plan. <laughs> I know the 357 plan. I know where this is going. plan is uh, once you run out of money and you're eating dog food off Social Security, 
you take a 357 and you blow your brains out. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's the only realistic option for many of us out here on the streets, okay? <laughs> I might do the red or black plan. Okay, you're going to go all in on a roulette table? You got it. Take your life savings, put it on red, put it on black. I would almost flip a coin, yeah. say heads is red, tails is black, flip the coin, decide where to put it. And, and then you can roll that over into the 357. Or maybe roll it into a Roth. If, if you win, <laughs> your option is... Oh, if I'm going to win. win you roll, <laughs> you're all in one way or another. Yeah. yeah. Once it tanks and you just roll that into the 357 plan and you're okay. All right. So yeah, that's right. 13, 13 billionaires. So yeah, basically Jeffrey Epstein is limiting himself to a pool of about 13 total clients when he started Jay Epstein and company. Jeez. And it's even more ridiculous when you think about the fact that Epstein didn't exit Bear Stearns with a massive reputation and a name that opened up doors necessarily. Right. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't some super trader. He was a dude that did well at Bear Stearns, but to walk out and say, I will represent you. I will take care of your money, but you have to have a billion dollars. All 13 of you. That's not even a fucking classroom full of people. Yeah, no, right. And was he like 26 at the time, give or take? Yeah, 82. He was born in 52. So he's running 30. 30? Yeah. yeah. 30. Yeah, that's pretty brash. Yeah. yeah. Well, pretty, yeah, pretty bold. Exactly. But yeah, so uh, he had become a partner at Bear. Like I said, he wasn't like he was on the executive board or anything. So what does Epstein do during this time? Well, that's another mystery, right? Sometime around the mid-80s, Epstein is introduced to a man named Stephen Hoffenberg. Who might Stephen Hoffenberg be, you ask? Well, before Bernie Madoff, there was Stephen Hoffenberg. Oh, who, no. In 1995, really? Stephen Hoffenberg pleaded guilty to cheating investors out of $460 million. At the time, the largest Ponzi scheme ever. Wow. Oh, yeah. 460? Wow. $460 million. Madoff had his daddy, but good night. That well, is yeah. a lot of money, the, though. The Ponzi scheme was occurring in the 80s. He finally got served up in 95, but all this was occurring in the 80s. Yeah, That was a lot got, of money back man, then. Man, you got to kind of wonder, these guys know that they're going to get caught. Like mm. I, I think, If it's a true Ponzi scheme, I think you have to know. Absolutely. That. But you have to know at some point, it's almost like being in the mafia, that you're going to live a very lavish lifestyle. You are going to have the finest things for probably a decade, maybe two at the most, mm. and then you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail. Or, yeah. or they start to get the complex that, like, I've made it this far. Nobody's going to catch me. Well, somebody this intelligent knows that this doesn't last forever. You aren't going to be able to keep up a Ponzi scheme forever. Just so, A market will correct. Something will happen to where it's all going to come to a head. I think what happens in these cases, especially even with these massive Ponzi schemes, is that somebody sets out to do the proper thing, which is I'll manage money. And then they offer up these uh, returns that aren't reasonable. And then when they can't make those, that's when they start cutting corners. And it's always this mentality that like, okay, I'll do this this one time. And then once I get back to square, it's okay. But they're basically going on tilt like a poker player. Yeah, like, it almost losing yeah. their mind. And they just, the smarter ones can make it last longer. But these things happen all the time. And the easiest thing to do is you take, a, this is what a Ponzi scheme is. Money from new investors, pay out old investors. The old investors are like, well, this is great. And this guy's the real deal. And that brings in new, new investors. money to pay the new investors who are waiting for a return in yeah year X. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like the Billy McFarland School of Economics. Yeah. yeah, like that's the thing. He was dumb. He didn't make it last long enough. Like that's the thing. Like when you have a guy like obviously like Hoffenberg or like Madoff. You know, Madoff had a pedigree to him too. He sure. was he was yeah. the head of Nasdaq. He was a fucking president of Nasdaq at one point. CEO of Nasdaq. So he already had the pedigree. And they can make it last for so long. I mean, Madoff pulled that shit off for like 30 years. Something That's like insane. that. That's insane. The yeah. Teachers Union of California had their pension mm -hmm. 
invested. That was Enron. They may have too. It touched a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. It, it, Kevin Bacon. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah, six degrees six, of, sep- of separation. Yeah, seven degrees. Seven degrees. It's six. Is it six? It is six yeah, degrees, six degrees yeah. of separation. I like seven. All right, fair enough. <laughs> that makes it much easier. <laughs> it's one more level. And I can't help every time I hear the fucking word Ponzi scheme, I can't help but think of uh, Fonzie from not from, Fonzie scheme. Yeah, Fonzie scheme. from Happy hey! Days. Hey! Yeah. yeah, exactly. Hey, it's a Fonzie scheme. A Fonzie scheme would be much better. People would appreciate. Wasn't that there a Muppet named Fonzie? That, that right? was Fozzie. Fozzie, Fozzie, Fozzie Bear. Bear. Same, and waka, waka, waka. <laughs> exactly. And that's kind of the same idea. I, I hear that word and kind of those Fozzie are the two things. That was like Fozzie. six degrees of separation connecting that I love thought it. right there. Yeah, absolutely. I took waka, your money. Waka, waka, waka. waka. <laughs> you want to hear a these, joke? <laughs> these, are, these days are yours and my happy days. <laughs> yeah. Here's a joke. He said, here's your return from your investment. Waka, waka, waka. waka. I'm off to prison. <laughs> Epstein didn't kill himself. That's... <laughs> and then no, just side note, it's just a funny injection because of all the recent stuff you've seen. So Well, we're gonna we're definitely getting into that. Absolutely. All right. But before he was busted, Hoffenberg would end up doing nearly twenty years for his crimes, and since his release has been very open about his relationship with Epstein. Before he was busted, Hoffenberg was fairly well respected and was ostensibly very wealthy. And after their initial meeting, Hoffenberg liked Epstein so much that he hired him into his company, Towers Financial, with a salary of $25,000 a month. Nice. Yeah, this is like 80s, mid-80s, right? So, Man, that's $300,000 a year back yeah, then. Yeah. yeah, That's insane money. It's a million yeah. bucks a year now. Yeah. yeah. There are a few interesting things Roughly. that Hoffenberg claims regarding Epstein. First, Hoffenberg claims that prior to him hiring Epstein, he was fairly certain that Epstein was involved in international arms trades, either in the direct sale aspect or or at least as a financial consultant for dealers who needed help moving and laundering the proceeds. No shit. In fact, he says that he was introduced to Epstein by Douglas Lease, described in a New York Magazine article as a mysterious British arms dealer. I never heard anything about the arms dealing. That's interesting. Yeah. I tried to do some research on Lease or Epstein's background in the arms dealing, but quickly realized it'd just be further down the rabbit hole. Uh, Besides, I couldn't find anything in the way of like reliable sources for it, except for that one mention in the New York Magazine about Douglas Lease. There's a lot of conspiracy type blogs and what have you, so I can't confirm there, but it's interesting. Sure. Another layer of mystery. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Secondly, Hoffenberg claims that although he escaped without charge, Epstein was deeply involved in the Ponzi scheme, which ultimately brought Towers Financial down and scored Hoffenberg a couple of decades in prison. No shit. He says basically- Did he ever testify against him? Somehow, Epstein scooted in time. He does that time after time again. Like Slide out just mm -hmm. before the shit hits the fan, right? And sure, it isn't hard to be skeptical about anything a guy like Hoffenberg claims, but it has been reported that during his time with Hoffenberg at Towers Financial, Epstein was practically his right arm. According to one close source, they traveled everywhere together on Hoffenberg's plane all around the world. They were always together. So it stands to reason that Hoffenberg isn't lying about Epstein's involvement in the historically huge Ponzi scheme. And something else that occurs during his time with Hoffenberg serves as a reminder that Epstein is not afraid to misrepresent himself. See... In a deposition in 1989 involving a civil business case in Philadelphia, Epstein is forced to be a bit more honest about his sources of revenue. Hmm. And this is 89? 89, yes. Okay. Right? So supposedly he's a fund manager for the ultra-wealthy, right? All billionaires. Well, not most of the time, according to him. Instead, in this deposition, 
He admits that he spent the vast majority of his time assisting people recover stolen money from fraudulent brokers and lawyers. I did read oh, about man. that. Yeah. yeah. He, it was almost like a collection. Not necessarily yeah, collections. Basically, but yes. Collections. It is. Yeah. High Very high level collections. Yes. Yeah. Hey, guys, real quick. If you're liking the show, do us a favor and give us that sweet, sweet five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're catching us on. It makes a huge difference. Now back to asshole court. So, as I mentioned already, Epstein escapes the burning house that is Towers Financial. And yeah, it's mysterious how he manages to avoid charges, but he does it. And it's around the same time as the deposition in which he details that his billionaire-only investment fund is really just kind of a side hustle that he actually lands his first billionaire client, Les Wexner. Victoria's Secret, right? That's right. By the time Epstein met him, Wexner was a retail giant who had turned a $5,000 loan from an ant into a then $3 billion empire with Victoria's Secrets, Express, The Limited, and Bath and Body Works. Wow. Man, good okay. on him, wow. man. $5,000 loan into a $3 billion empire? Ooh. That's insane. In a slightly different arrangement from the Hoffenberg relationship, Epstein manages to interject himself into nearly every facet of Wexner's life. Wexner assigns Epstein the power of fiduciary over all of his private trusts and foundations. In 1992, Epstein even goes so far as to have Wexner's own mother taken off the board of the Wexner Foundation and replaced with himself. This is going to set the table for the house, right? Yes, yeah, yep. that's exactly this whole thing is completely insane. Epstein got deeply involved in the construction of Wexner's private yacht, then one of the largest in the world. Epstein's involvement ended with a yacht completed, but strings of litigation behind it. Yeah, I remember the company saying that it was one of the few times that they actually were commissioned for something, built it, had no issues with it, but still had trouble collecting the money due for it. Right. Or something like that. It was something just ridiculous. It sounds like he was just being a pain in the ass. Yeah, exactly. And then there is the Manhattan townhouse, 9 East 71st Street, New York, New York. Oh, Lord, this thing is a beast. In 1989, Wexner bought the seven-story Beau Arts home for $13.2 million. At the time, it was the highest recorded sale price for a townhouse in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. But Wexner never moved in. Instead, he chose to stay in Columbus, Ohio, where his company was headquartered. That's the obvious choice. But guess who did eventually move in? That's right. That's right. Jeffrey Epstein did. Furthermore, there were additions and renovations done to the home that he oversaw. By the time it's all said and done, the home was reportedly one of the largest in New York with more than 21,000 square feet, five bathrooms, a two-story reception room, and a heated sidewalk to melt snow. By 1996, Epstein is telling everyone that he personally owns the home, explaining to them that he bought the house because he knew he, quote, could never live anywhere bigger. And yes, he certainly is the person that is living there and overseeing the renovations, decorations, etc. But there was never a transaction listed in any New York City records at the time of that one article I was looking at. Uh, in 2011, however, Epstein does transfer ownership of the property from a trust connected to him and Wexner to an offshore trust solely under Epstein's control. Funny how we started to go offshore here. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. where all the money's hidden usually. Yes. There's an absolute ocean of cash out there that nobody can account for. For Wexner to gift Epstein such an opulent home is strange, even if they had been lifelong friends. But this all occurs within a relatively short time after their initial introduction, just a few years. I wonder if this is where Wexner stayed all the time when he would come to New York, or if I'm Epstein just wondering just... what kind of shit he had on this guy it's for a weird him to thing. buy a $13 investment, knowing that this property value is going to escalate quickly. Well, yeah. You know, and not really pressing the issue to move in. 
Well, I'm wondering if he never really saw in 2011 Epstein moving it to his name and his own company in the Virgin Islands. You know, but if this guy is head of a $3 billion company, I mean, that's just good real estate to have, you know, just a good asset to have on the sheet. Yeah, but it's weird to buy it and then never move into it and then have that guy basically move in and then start claiming that it's his house and never never really get pushback. Yeah. What dirt did Epstein have? On this guy, yeah, is yeah, my sure. question, right? It's well, obviously he had a lot of dirt and, on and everybody. I guess you got to kind of question the guy that starts the bra and panty company. Let's just put that out there. Yeah, you know, I, granted, it's a great idea, and big ups to this guy because he created a huge empire with those businesses. Mm-hmm. It was George Costanza's dad mm-hmm. that had the man's ear. The, he, the, the the bro, the no, it's the man's ear. Okay, yeah. Well, so, that was the was, that was the argument. It's it's the bro. That's it's right. The man's ear. I, I like to call it a man's ear. Because it, it fits the profile. I mean, like I said, it's it's very odd. Obviously, yeah. you're wondering what this is. And it was strange to a lot of people that were around Wexner as well. Sure. According to uh, the article, The Talented Mr. Epstein from 2003, Wexner's uh, kindness to Epstein left many people scratching their heads. One person who worked very closely to Wexner stated, quote, Almost everyone at the Limited wondered who Epstein was. He literally came out of nowhere. And former Limited Vice Chairman Robert Morosky explained, quote, Everyone was mystified as to what his appeal was. Yeah, it's just odd. Like I said, that's the big question. What was the appeal of a guy like Jeffrey Epstein to super wealthy guys like Les? Or the one wealthy guy that apparently, you know, the only Mm -hmm. he's the only billionaire that's ever been linked to Epstein in his wealth management. At that point, especially, there are other people that got linked in later on, but at this point, it's just completely insane. Yeah, he was the sole provider to his wealth management firm. Right. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of odd. Like you said, it's just odd how the things worked out to where... Epstein winds up in his $13 million home. Yeah. And uh, there's no real, I don't know, reason as to why. Well, as I'm saying, you have to question what would allow him to ingratiate himself to guys like Wexner and turn his fortune from a court filed financial statement in 1988 in which he declared a net worth of $20 million, half of which was incredibly questionable, but I'm not going to get into that, to his later mountain of assets, which included the $56 million New York City townhouse, an apartment in Paris, a 7,500-acre ranch in New Mexico with the largest private residence in the state, a 70-acre private island in the U.S. Virgin Islands, a beachside mansion in Palm Beach, and a fleet of aircraft including a helicopter, a Gulfstream 4, and a Boeing 727. Jeez, man. That's quite the list of assets right there. Mm-hmm. It's like a rap video just compiled into one person's yeah. assets. Yeah. Take all, take all his shit and go put that on the bling bling video. And well, yeah. That's, yeah. That's and he, it was his bling bling. Yeah. And MTV cribs. And yeah. He's not letting cribs in the house. We'll dive into what the <laughs> fuck was in his house, but there's not a chance in hell. He's letting, Hey, come on in guys. Come yeah. look at the fucking. This is where all the magic happens. <laughs> yeah. You're like, is this a children's playroom? Right. Is this a sex doll hanging from the chandelier? That's right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but before we get into what I'll call the reasonably speculative part of the show, let's take a look at what type of guy Epstein was. According to those that knew him, hung around him, or dated him, Jeffrey Epstein could easily be defined as eccentric. Yeah. You know, the term that is used when you want to say a rich person is weird as fuck. A poor person, they're just fucking crazy, but a rich person, well, they're, you know... Eccentric. Eccentric. That's and if right. you'll remember in my initial intro, that was kind of my the, one of the words I used. Yeah. This guy's eccentric. I said eclectic. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, it's a synonym. Very for similar. It. But exactly. That's kind of the vibe you get. Exactly. If you're rich, you're eccentric or eclectic. If you're poor, you are fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's true, man. Nice double standard we set for society. That's it. He practiced Iyengar yoga. 
He showered many times a day. He hated restaurants and refused to eat at them whenever possible. He only ate whole grains, proteins, and leafy greens. He was doing this decades before it became popular with average Americans. According to one girlfriend, Epstein was practically agoraphobic with a fear of groups and a dislike of shaking people's hands. He believed in transhumanism and had various theories on the human body, such as a theory that if a person had too much muscle mass, you wouldn't be as smart as you possibly could be. Well, of course. Another theory was that the perfect temperature for human sleep was at exactly 54 degrees Fahrenheit. All right, so this is one aspect I would probably uh, favor towards Mr. Epstein's preference. You do like cold. I you like it really cold, Randy. I love to sleep in cold weather. But still, 54 degrees is pretty cold, man. That's really fucking cold. Yeah. If I wake up in the middle of the night and it's like 62 in the mm-hmm. house, woo! I mean, like, it's bitter cold at that point, and it's time to turn the heat on. But yeah. I do like it cold. I'm in a good 65. I'm yeah. rolling. Oh, yeah. I'm, sure. I'm I like to sleep in the cold, too. I sleep better in the cold as long as I have a lot of blankets. The disaster is when you have to get up. Oh, yeah, like for that middle-of-the-night bathroom break. That, or even just getting started in the morning, and you're like, I mean, I immediately just basically run to the shower. Yeah. Just crank the fucking shower up to, like, 115 degrees. <laughs> Scald you. Yes. Epstein famously hated wearing suits, opting instead for a wardrobe consisting almost entirely of jeans, T-shirts, and sweaters. Monogram sweaters. That's Hell right. yeah. J.E., baby. That's right. And like Randy said, he didn't drink or smoke or take drugs. He was very adamant about that. And he didn't like to hang around people that did either. That's my thing. I don't understand how this guy didn't drink. Right? In situations that he was in with very highfalutin people in these like crazy, ultra-posh parties and environments where you're always... You know, there's cocktails just flowing at these things. He didn't imbibe. He yeah. didn't He didn't partake, which is odd to me because some of the shit you hear about that went down, mm-hmm. you got to think this guy's fucked up. Yeah. Nope. Sober as a bat doing yeah. all this fuck shit. So. Well, it sounds like he was almost scanning the room trying to find, you know, the weaknesses in there that he could then in turn hold against people later right. on in life. Yeah. Exactly. And just because a person doesn't like drugs or booze doesn't mean that they don't have a vice. Yeah. That's oh, like man. Room. In fact, we all have our vices. It's just, you know, what is it and how bad is it? I I was about to say, I was about to say, everybody has a vice, right? That's my argument. And Epstein's vice was women and likely to a larger extent, power. Yeah. As we all know, Epstein would eventually use one to gain the other and vice versa. That's exactly right. Power over women. Mm -hmm. Yep. One of Epstein's former girlfriends told journalists how Epstein explained his MO to her. Quote, I control everyone and everything. I collect people. I own people. I can damage people. So that's the end of episode one of Jeffrey Epstein and Asshole Court. In the next episode, we'll do our best to show how we think Epstein was able to collect the wealthy and powerful and how he used them for his own means. Thanks for listening and make sure to follow up with episode two and let us know what you think of Jeffrey Epstein on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter accounts at AHC Podcast.